Well, good morning. You're here today because God brought you here. Um, sometimes we think we bring ourselves, but in reality, we're here because of the prompting of the Holy Spirit that He brings us, and, uh, and He works to bring us and put us where we are to be at that moment. So some people would say God called them out to hunt and kill a deer or an elk this weekend. Um, and some are mourning and grieving at home because BYU won last night. Um, but some of you are here, all of you are here because you were prompted by the Holy Spirit and God brought you. And so that is a good thing that you made it. Uh, sometimes we refuse. The Bible even talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. That's certainly not a place any of us want to be in our lives where we quench the Holy Spirit and ignore it and uh, do our own thing. And so we're glad that you made it here this morning to worship our God together. Uh, what a great time of singing and reading scripture and prayer. I want to continue that as we jump into the text this morning. I've been given now, because I've started the last few messages with some different jokes, I'm starting to get jokes given to me now, like, hey, you got to try this one. So, so um, I think I'll try this. I don't know if I can remember it exactly. I was just showing this this morning. But, but a guy goes into a, a pet store, and he says, I'd like to order a dozen bees. So the pet owner starts putting together their package and everything and says, well, here you go. Here's, here's your bees. And then the owner counts it up. It's like, well, hey, you gave me, you gave me 13. And he goes, oh, that's a freebie. <laughs> so, so there you go. There's your dad joke for the day, so a <clears throat> freebie. Well, hey, Esther um, is about living with courage backed by providence, and we're really going to hit that hard today when we get into chapter 7. The reality is God calls us all to live with courage and to be bold in our faith and to go out there and to present our faith and that truth to other people. There is a world dying without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to go very far to find it. You don't have to cross the ocean. You don't have to cross the borders. Or right here, right in our own town, right in our own city, right in your own neighborhood, there are people who reject Jesus Christ. And because of that, they'll spend eternity paying for their sins when somebody has already come and paid for their sins for them. And that's a sad reality because for us, it's so clear. Like, here's the gospel. Here's how wonderful it is. Here's how powerful it is. It forgives each person who comes to Christ and says, please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. That's an amazing thing. And that's something that sticks with us for all eternity. But there are people that still reject it. And so we need to do our part to go out there and live our lives courageously in front of people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and be the witness of Jesus. Right? Amen? Well, we got to get there and do that. Well, we also need to know that when we go out and live a courageous life, we're backed by providence. And that's what we see over and over again in this book, in this story of Esther, is that God is always there kind of behind the scenes, working things out. And Esther begins to realize that. And here I think she gets even more courage to stand up before the king and, and ask the king this really difficult request. But she had courage because she saw God working in the background. And we need to be reminded at times that God is still at work in the background. And we don't always see it. We don't always feel it. If you're a feeler and you're driven a lot by emotions and those types of things, you may say, I don't always feel God's presence. But He's there. We've got to believe it. Trust it. 
So as I was thinking about sovereignty and God always being in control and providence and everything else, I began to ask the question this week, just in my own walk, Lord, why did you lead us to go through Esther? I think that, again, is God's choice. He led us to the point to say, hey, at this time in involved church's life, I'm going to have you guys go through the book of Esther. Because we pray for that. We ask God those types of things. God, would you lead us in that direction? And so we trust that, that he provided this at this time. So why, God, would you have us live with courage, backed by providence, go through this and keep hitting that point over and over again for 10 weeks and then go through life group and those types of things? And, and as I began to reflect and I began looking at just kind of the life of our church and where we're at, and I started thinking, oh, okay, I kind of see it. The last couple of months, there have been a lot of things that have happened that really, since the beginning of Involved Church, all the way back to 2015, we started the church and we started, you know, kind of going along and we had about 25 adults, 25 kids. We started working, developing teams and, and a lot of the focus was on planting the church and getting the church up and going and getting it, you know, self-sustaining and all those types of things. And there weren't a lot of discussions about what were going on in people's lives because we were all focused on that one thing. And then you get kind of ingrained and rooted a little bit and you get a little more established and, and more lives are coming in and you're touching more people. And as you do, you begin to see just how the burdens have built maybe over time. And it's not that we ignored them necessarily. They were always there, but now we're, we're starting to deal with them and wrestle with them a little bit more. And so these are some of the things that we've seen just recently, and some of them are just because they've come up in the last couple of months. So I just started going through, thinking through, what have I heard in the last couple of months, just two months in our church and what people are dealing with? So the one thing, uh, some of you might know this, but there are a few people that have lost a job here recently in our church, which is a big hit, Right? You have this income, and all of a sudden a job is lost, and you're kind of wondering, what's the next job? And it's for a variety of reasons, whether it's um, you know, just a downturn in that local economy or whether it's uh, something needed to change you know, at that job. Whatever it is, there's just been loss of jobs. That's a hard burden, a tough burden, and it affects the family. It affects that immediate family. It affects our church family. Uh, parents of adult kids making poor choices. This is something that I hear more and more um, you get parents who are saying, man, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of books about how to raise little kids. Are there any books about how to raise adults? Um, no, there's not. And sometimes all you do is you sit back and watch, and you mourn, and you weep, as maybe they make some, some tough decisions. And so uh, parents of adult kids making poor choices, and you watch them go through that, and you, you struggle through it. Uh, students. Okay, so this is kind of the young adults who are wondering about what they're going to do in life, and they talk about anxiety and the pressures that they've got going on and the things that are going on as far as their career choice and, and college, education, all that kind of stuff, where they're going to live. Uh, you got singles wondering about marriage. Is that ever going to happen? When's it going to happen? How are you going to find that right person? you got health concerns, uh, people who are, are struggling with maybe chronic pain, um, health concerns that they have, people struggling with cancer and things they're finding out when they go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, this is, this is something that's in your life. Uh, you're going to have to deal with this. Maybe get treatment, medication, those types of things. There are people dealing with deep emotional scars from the past, like a heavy burden upon them and they don't know how to deal with it. Never seen, it seems like whenever they take a couple steps forward, they get bunked back a couple more steps. There are people dealing with consequences due to past choices. And you feel like you're always trying to, to dig your way out of a hole, 
but you never get out because those consequences keep pushing down on you. There are those who are dealing with marriage conflict. And, of course, there's always depression, guilt, anxiety, anger, insecurities. And then there's the sins that we wrestle with, right? Like pride, always thinking you're right and everybody else is wrong. If everybody would do things your way. And then there's the jealousy and the envy, like everybody's got what I want. And then there's the addictions and the selfishness, and it just keeps going. These are just some of the things I've heard about in a church just our size in the last couple months. And you come back to this question, do we believe that God is God? Do we have courage that He is good and trust Him that He is good? And will we live with the confidence that He is behind the scenes working things out for our good? as we read about in Romans chapter 8. And we've talked about that and even challenged you to, to read it and memorize it. For we know that God causes all things together for work to good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. Do you believe that? Now, we can say it, we can read it, but do we really trust it? And so we talk about this Esther who lived with courage and got to a point where she saw God working in her life. And I think there's an encouragement there for all of us to say, yes, I believe God's working in our life. And we can look back in history and say, oh, look at where he lived. And we can get courage from that to keep going forward through tomorrow. Sometimes we don't have answers to the things that happen in life. Paul was talking in Romans 10. You can read about it in Romans 9 as well. And in chapter 11, he talks about his, his love for the Jewish people. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. In, in other words, they, they forsook the gospel. They forsake it, sorry, and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. So here's a group of people that did not submit to their Messiah that came for them. And, and Paul goes through a couple chapters here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he's saying God is a sovereign God. People have a free choice, and for some people, they're still, or for some reason, they're still rejecting it. And he's wrestling with it, and so he comes to the end of chapter 11, and look at what he has to say. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For, I, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul came to a point in his life where he realized that there are questions he has, there are struggles he has, there are tensions in his heart that he has, and he sees God doing some things over here, and he would really like it if God would save all of Israel, but he doesn't. And he comes to this conclusion that God is God and he is not. And he's going to trust God's plan through it all. And so we come to this point that God is sovereign, and sometimes it surprises us. We're going to talk about his surprising sovereignty this morning. So you came here for a reason. God brought you here. Think of all the things you could have done today instead. Probably a long list, right? There's an old story of a man who didn't want to get up for church on Sunday morning, so he kept complaining to his wife about the time, you know, church starts. Oh, 
Why does it have to start so early? People there don't even like me. They say, just give me one good reason why I should go to church. And she said, well, it's because you're the pastor. <laughs> well, God got us here, right? And, uh, and I'm glad He did. Satan doesn't want us here, right? It's a victory that we're here. It's a victory that we can praise and worship God together, sing these songs together, open His Word together. It's a victory that we can encourage each other as we see each other on a Sunday morning. Those are all great victories. And you have have made this church be what it is. You guys have, have done a great part in that. You've invited people to come. That's awesome. You've, you know, you've you put on a warm smile. Hopefully when people come in, you greet them, you give them a cup of coffee, you let them know that they're, they're welcome to be here, and you're inviting people. Keep doing that. That's what we need to do to keep reaching. And then take what you learn and take the faith that you have and go out into the world and share it with Christ. You are a big part of what this church is doing. I'll work hard to do my part in preaching and teaching the gospel. You work hard to do your part in going out and reaching the world and sharing the gospel and bringing them in. And together, we make a great team to see people come to Christ. Well, let's pray, and then we'll dig into the the text this morning. Father, we are grateful that you are God who's in charge. You are sovereign, and you bring us here to this place today. There's a lot of stories right here. A lot of people with different things going on in their lives. And so, God, we approach you in a lot of different ways from a lot of different viewpoints. But, God, we ask that this one message that comes from your word speaks to all of us. Teach us and guide us today. We are we're empty without you. So fill us with your Holy Spirit, with the truth that comes from your word. And I pray that we would leave this place encouraged and more in love with you than when we came. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our big idea for the day is this. What appears to be irony is really God's surprising sovereignty. Uh, People talk about irony, and people often mention Esther in the Bible and say that is such a, a book that is full of irony. Let's take a look at what irony is. This is according to the Oxford Dictionary. It says it's a state of affairs or event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects, and it's often amusing as a result. So we like it because it adds some humor to it, but you're going in a direction, and all of a sudden it stops, and it changes, and maybe flips a 180 or just shoots off in a different direction, and it's somewhat of a humorous direction, and that's what happens in chapter 7. It starts in chapter 6 because you see a little bit of it in chapter 6 when Haman is leading Mordecai around, who is a Jew, who he's trying to destroy, and he's leading him around the city, and he says, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. When Haman himself thought he was the one that should be honored, if you remember that story. And you can look back there if you'd like to read chapter 6, or you can listen to the message from last week. But I just want to give you a reminder of where we're at in the story. So we have four characters that we've been introduced to. One was the king, King Ahasuerus, who was at this time on the earth the most powerful king. Then you have Queen Esther, who came into power because Vashti, the queen before, was, uh, was disobedient to the king. The king didn't like her response to one of his questions, so she was gone, has a pageant, chooses Esther instead. 
Mordecai is the uncle of Queen Esther. And he's one of the city officials. He's at the city gate. He still has a relationship through maybe some other people. Every once in a while, he's able to see Esther as well, so he can communicate back and forth to her what's going on out into, in the city and the province. And then you have Haman, who's the villain. And Haman is the one who wants to destroy the Jews. And he comes up with this elaborate plan. He goes and he convinces the king. King, there's a group of people. He doesn't name them, which is very important, I think. He says, there's a group of people that is trying to, you know, overthrow you. And king's like, whoa, we don't like that. He's like, well, just give me some, give me some authority to wipe them out. And so the king's like, here's my ring. Here's my signet ring. Go do what you need to do. And so he writes up an edict that says, we're going to be able to destroy the Jews. It's a great elaborate plan. But last week, the tide began to turn because Haman, who, again, thought he should be honored, actually took Mordecai out in the city and gave honor to him. So those are some of the things that are happening in this story this far. And uh, we'll just pick up in in chapter 7 and see where we go from there. So this is Esther chapter 7 starting with verse 1. It says, Once again on the second day while drinking wine. You'll notice that phrase quite often. Uh, it's a big part of their kingdom and their celebrations and their banquets and so forth. So on the second day, I don't think that was that they were drinking for two days but, and having a banquet for two days. I think the point here is that this was the second banquet. Okay, we had a banquet before where Esther approaches the king and says, Hey, would you let us have a second banquet. He's like, great, I like banquets. So he agreed to the second banquet. In the middle is where you had the the story that really is the pivotal point of the whole story of Esther, where Haman thinks that he should be honored, and instead Mordecai is honored. Okay, So that happens in between these two banquets. So this second banquet is happening. The king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. He knew in this case, that Esther had something more to ask than just, would you come to a banquet with me? He says, whatever you ask, even to half the kingdom, which was kind of a phrase of saying, I will, I will grant you your request. Whatever you ask will be done. So Queen Esther answered, I, if I have found favor in your eyes. Now she starts off in a very respectful manner. This is different, and in contrast, if you go back to Vashti and look at her and how she responded to the king, when, she, when he was asking her to come and you know, parade around in front of people, she was disrespectful to the king, she was disrespectful to his request. This is complete opposite of that, where she comes, Esther comes and says, if I have found favor, she recognizes the king and his power, and she recognizes her and who she was in line in that power, and she says, okay, if I have found favor with you in a respectful way, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. I think that would have got the king's attention, because the king's probably thinking, why? What's the danger, right? And so she goes on, I says, for my people... And I have been sold. And I think the sold reference there is a reference back to Haman says to King when he makes the original deal, if you allow me to do this, you're going to get a lot of money for it, okay? So we've been sold to, and she says three different things, destruction, death, and extermination, all very similar ideas. The point is, listen, we're going to die. We're going to be destroyed. 
If we had merely been sold as male and female servants, I would have kept silence because we wouldn't have died. We would have just been sold and used for something else. Indeed, the, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. The king would have been okay with it. I would have been okay with it. Everything would have been fine. But, but we're going to die. And so I'm approaching you with this request. So King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who devised such a scheme? Now, I've read a couple different responses to this, and some think that quite possibly he's playing dumb at this point and saying, oh, I know this was happening, but um, I'm going to play dumb. Or I think he was, being, or he was being sincere, and I think that's probably the case, that he really didn't know that he had asked for all the Jews to be destroyed. Um, that's probably a little bit more of the minority view. But if, again, if you go back to chapter 3 and you read chapter 3, you'll notice that the Jews were never mentioned when Haman came to the king and said, hey, I'd like to destroy this group of people. He just called it a group of people. Now, I do think the king was a little foolish in saying, yes, go ahead and destroy them without finding out and doing a little more research. But it is quite possible that here he was somewhat innocent as far as who those groups of, or who those people were. So Esther answered, the adversary and the enemy is the evil Haman. Now, remember, at this point in the banquet, you have some guards and probably some other people, but we've got King, we've got Queen Esther, and we've got Haman. This is an awkward moment for Haman, right? Haman stood terrified before the king and queen because he realized, and I'm sure the day before didn't help, or the morning before didn't help, when he was leading Mordecai around and he was saying, hey, this is the one that the king wants to honor, he realized that the things were starting to turn. And now he hears this. And that was fresh in his mind. And it was fresh in the king's mind too. Hey, we just took and honored this Jewish man, Mordecai. My queen is Jewish. And now this guy who's been a right-hand man is trying to destroy both Mordecai and Esther, and many others as well. And so the king arises in anger and goes forth from there. He went out from there where they were drinking wine to a place in the garden. Now the question may come up, why at that point did the the king leave? There's a couple of different thoughts, uh, at least in my head. One is that he, he may have needed to leave just because he didn't know what to do at the moment. I needed to think, maybe even talk to some advisors and say, hey, this issue has has come up. I I maybe made some foolish decisions in the past. Maybe he's learning to take it a little bit slower and be a little wiser. That's possibly one reason. If it were me, and this is reading into it from my point of view, but if it were me, I would have gone out and asked one of the servants, hey, can you bring me the edict? Let me read that because maybe he didn't read it carefully before, or maybe he didn't read it at all. And reality is, he may have left because he just felt guilty and didn't know how to deal with Haman. You see, he, he was the one that signed the edict. Now, it was Haman who used his, his signet ring, but it's still his signet ring, and it's still his signature. 
And he's the one that signed off on it. So when this was brought up, even though Esther said it was Haman, he also realized, you know what, I'm responsible for it too because I'm the king and I sent it out there. And so all these things he's struggling with in his mind and he's starting to think, well, how am I going to deal with this thing? So he gets up and he leaves. He goes out into the garden and Haman then remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. And so there's something interesting that happens here. Now, before we read forward, just think about this. Haman, technically, by law, hasn't done anything wrong. There's an ethical problem. But he did have permission from the king to make this edict. He had the king's signet ring. He signed off on it. He went out there and did as the king had ordered him and told him to do. So what does the king have against him? There's really nothing legally. So, fortunately... Haman is begging Queen Esther, and that's where the king gets him. Just as the king returned from the palace guard to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So as he's gone, he comes back, and Haman is begging in the process here. I was reading one commentator, and they thought that maybe uh, Angel Gabriel was there. And as soon as the king walks in, Gabriel kind of bumps him over, and he falls you know, on top of, of Queen Esther. I don't know if that was the case. But I do think the timing is providential. The timing is God at work because Haman was probably coming back in going, I wonder how I'm, excuse me, King Ahasuerus was coming back in wondering, how am I going to get Haman? And he walks in and what does he find? He finds Haman in this way, the way it reads with basically his hands over, all over Queen. And he's like, that's it, that's all I need. And so it says here they, they covered Haman's face, which would have been something that would have been done at that time. Today we might say they let him out in handcuffs or something like that. Um, but that's the idea. The, it says immediately, as soon as this statement left his mouth, the other guards, they covered Haman's face and they began to take him out. And this is what happened after that. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. And the king said, hang him on it. Now, some of your translations, uh, I think the NIV is one that uses it this way. A couple other ones talk about a stake and impaling Haman. And certainly if you go back to uh, the way the Persians did it, the Persians did impale people on a stake. They would take a, a post and they would sharpen it and they would throw people on it. Sorry to be graphic, but that's kind of what they would do. That was one of the ways they would end people's lives. And so some have suggested that really what's happening here is you have this stake 75 feet tall or maybe on top of a tower or something like that. He had built it and they would take him up there for all to see and they would impale him on it. The word in Hebrew is hang him on it or dangle him on it. And so that's where a lot of people get the idea of gallow instead where they would actually hang him. I don't know which one it was. And to be honest with you, it doesn't change the impact of the story, right? Um. Haman had built this way to execute Mordecai, and instead of Mordecai being executed on it, it was actually Haman. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, 
Then the king's anger subsided. So when we come back to our main theme with Esther, we're talking about living with courage backed by providence. Esther stepped up and said to the king, King, I may be putting my life on the line here, but you need to know something's going on in your kingdom. And it's a bad thing. You're, you're about to wipe out my people and the Jews. Oh, and I want to tell you that your right-hand man is the one that's causing it all. That takes some guts. She didn't know what the outcome would be. But she, I think, began to see God working. We're told earlier that she was fasting. She asked the Jews to fast. I think with that comes the idea of prayer. prayer. So they were praying and they were fasting together. They were asking for God to lead in this. They believed that God was leading in it. They began to see some of it. I think she began to see it as, as Mordecai was being paraded around. I'm sure she got word of that. She saw, oh, things are changing. God is doing something. And so with confidence and with courage, she walked into the king and said, King, this is what is happening. Would you please spare our lives? Interestingly enough, we'll find out, but the king, because he signed it into order, he couldn't revoke it. He couldn't change it. So they had to come up with another plan, which we'll talk about as we keep going forward. In this chapter, you see a lot of irony, and so I want to bring home this point. What appears to be irony is really God's surprising sovereignty. I'm going to point out four different ways that we see irony in this passage, and in reality, God's surprising sovereignty. Once, or excuse me, the first one, the once proud and confident Haman now humbly begs for his life. Now, this was the guy that was walking around thinking, hey, I can, I can get rid of a whole group of people. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of confidence. This was the guy when he walks into the king, the king's like, hmm, who should I honor? How would you honor a great person? He thinks to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? That takes a lot of confidence, right? The once proud and confident Haman now humbly begs for his life. And he wasn't begging the king. He was begging the, the Jew that he wanted to kill and destroy. That's even a step lower. These rotten Jews that he thought he should be getting rid of, he is now begging his life for. Isaiah 26, 5, it says, For he has humbled those who live in lofty places, inaccessible city. He brings it down. He brings it down to the ground. He throws it to the dust. This was written to Israel, the nation of Israel. And he, God tells them, listen, I will humble cities before you. I will humble people before you. And that's exactly what you see happen there with Haman. The once proud and confident Haman now humbly begs for his life. The second thing you see is the once quiet and fearful queen is now in charge of Haman's future. This is a girl that you go back and you read, and she was, she was afraid just because Mordecai was in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. She was terrified, it said. She was fearful. She didn't want to go in and talk to the king. She didn't want to approach him. She knew that that meant that she could lose her life. I mean, look what happened to Vashti, and look what happened to other people that did that. So she knew that. She didn't want to do it. She was quiet. She was fearful. And now she's in charge of Haman's future as he sits there and begs for his life. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
One of the things you love about Esther in the story, and you see, and I hope that you saw it clearly, is that she remained respectful to the king, yet was courageous. Sometimes we lose respect. Sometimes when we have people that we think, oh, you've done something bad, we treat them poorly. Esther could have done that. Esther could have came in much like Vashti or much like other people might have thought she should have come in and just start chewing out the king, but she doesn't. She comes in with great respect, says, king, please find favor. If you're pleased, your majesty, you are king, you have the choice to make here. And she respects him. Those who humble themselves, God will exalt at the proper time, but we've got to do things God's way and not our way. We have to humble ourselves to him and follow him and submit to his plan rather than following our own plan. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. The third bit of irony that we see or God's surprising sovereignty is the king's most trusted servant was misunderstood at his most sincere moment. So here was Haman who had for for many years now acquired a lot of respect and the king said, hey, I'll I'll give you my signet ring. You can go out there. You can make laws. And, And the king didn't even know what he was doing as far as making laws. He just trusted him. And now he gets to a point in his life where he's the most sincere. He's begging for his life. He wasn't trying to um, violate Esther. He was begging for his life, but when the king comes in, it was misunderstood, or at least the king used it to arrest him. It's a bit of irony there. It reminds us that a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Reputation matters. And if you have your reputation for being dishonest, a trickster, unreliable, cruel, and selfish, it sticks with you. And it takes a long time to change it. Haman didn't have a long time to change it. It was quick, and his judgment was quick. But you can, if you've got a... If you have a poor reputation, you know, it gets tough because you're like, well, I don't want to think about that. But, but if you have a poor reputation for a variety of reasons, it can change, but give it time. You can change with the help of Christ, and you can build a reputation of being genuine and honest and gracious and selfless. But it takes time. Sometimes the biggest mistake I see in people's lives is they think, as a Christian, hey, I became a Christian. Everybody needs to forgive me and forget and move on. But there's a reality there that when we mess up and when we make mistakes, there are consequences to those mistakes. And we have to build and rebuild reputations. People don't just trust you because you're a Christian. Right? Or let me ask you this, do you trust all Christians just because they have the name Christian? We trust people by the fruit we see, by their actions, and that takes time to build. You've got to have a good reputation. Haman learned that the, the hard way. Well, the last bit of irony or surprising sovereignty that we see is the most obvious one. The gallows built to hang Mordecai were used to hang the enemy instead, right? 
Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman goes to this, this great extent of building, building his gallows, making sure they're really high so people can see it very clearly. He wanted to hang a Jew up there. He wanted to show everybody this is what happens to the people that oppose the king instead. The irony there, of course, he's hauling Mordecai around saying this is what happens to the one the king wants to honor. And he's the one that gets hung up on the gallows instead. Reminds me of Psalm 64, 2 through 8. I'll read verse 2 and then skip down to some other verses here. It says, Hide me from the scheming of wicked people, from the mob of evildoers. They adopt an evil plan. They talk about hiding traps and say, Who will see them? So that's kind of like uh, Haman. They devise crimes and say, We have perfected a secret plan. The inner man and the heart are mysterious, but God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly, they will be wounded. And they'll be made to stumble. Their own tongues work against them. All who see them will shake their heads. Our most recent history, there was a man in the last hundred years who rose in government and wanted to kill the Jews. He set out to do it. And he killed a lot. But by God's grace, he was wounded and he was taken down. Many of you know that name is to be Hitler. So it, it doesn't just happen 2,500 years ago. It happened less than 100 years ago. But God still is protecting his people. He wants them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've rejected the Messiah. We're going to go into Romans chapter, or actually all of Romans next year, 2020. And we're going to see that more and more. As you go through the book of Romans, there is a time as you get into the later chapters where Paul is wrestling with that. I mentioned it earlier this morning where he's wrestling with the Jews and the Gentiles and how all that works together. So we'll walk through that together later on. But God still loves his people, his family. And we've been brought into that through Christ. He's got a future plan for Israel, and he's protected them. He's even given them a nation back today. And there's a future plan that he has for them. God's in control. And I think that's what we see over and over in Esther. That's what we see in chapter 7. What appears even to be irony and what we might call to be irony, what we might call to be a coincidence is really God's surprising sovereignty. He doesn't just let things happen. He is in control the whole way through. He knew that today, on this very day, we'd be going through this message. He knew that you would be here on this very day. He knew that you would need to hear some of these words, if not all of them, on this very day. He knew you would need to sing the songs you need to sing. He knew you needed to pray the prayers you needed to pray. He knew all of that because he's a sovereign God. And he knows what you're going to do this afternoon. And he knows how many of you are going to lose in fantasy football today. (laughs) Right? And he's okay with it. You may not be, but he's okay with it. In fact, he probably doesn't care. But I won't say that too loudly, right? God's not surprised at anything that happens because he's the one doing the surprising And he surprises us with his results at times. Here's some concluding thoughts as we close up today. Courage increases 
from knowing that God has sovereignly planned out the future. Our courage ought to increase, at least, from knowing that God has sovereignty planned, sovereignly planned out the future. Uh, we ought to be able to rely on the fact that he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows what's happened in, in the past, and he knows what's going to happen two years from now. God has planned out that future, and we know in Romans chapter 8 it says, he works all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And he has a plan for us. We may not always like it. I have to admit, I don't always like God's plan. But it's better than my plan and I trust Him with it. We can have confidence, and that confidence increases from knowing you're part of God's plan. You're not somebody just out there wandering around, but you're part of God's plan. It's not that God is just aimless with people, like, oh, I'll throw you there and see what happens. He puts you specifically where you are at that moment, in the neighborhood that you're in, in the job that you're in, in the family that you're in, in the church that you're in, in the car that you're in, going down the highway at this moment. God puts you there for a reason. You can have confidence in that because you're part of his plan. And there are times in life when he throws you some curveballs, right? Right? You guys have never, well, I guess you guys have never experienced that. Well, let me tell you, there are going to be curveballs in life. Right? But you can be confident that God's with you and He's walking through it with you. And this last one, your love for God increases from knowing His plan, and His, His plan is and will be perfectly executed. As we go through this life on this earth, uh, there are times I want to see God's plan executed now. It um, doesn't always happen that way. But I do know that in the end, His plan will be perfectly executed. I do know that even every day it's done that way. Maybe not to my liking, but certainly to His liking. And that's the thing I need to learn to trust and have faith in. But one day, we'll be there at the judgment seat. And one day we'll be watching as there are people coming through and there's judgment taking place and those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will, will know that they are secure in Him and have eternal life. But there are people that will come through that judgment and they will hear those final words. You did not believe in me. I don't know you. And we'll watch. Now, this is something I don't have a lot of evidence of. This is a little bit of my own, my own thought. If you read the end of Revelation. We often talk about how there's no weeping or crying or mourning, but if you end the book of Revelation, you're going to read something that's always been a little interesting to me, maybe mysterious, and that is it says he wipes, present tense, he wipes away every tear. I just wonder if we're going to be mourning when we see the massive amount of people going to pay for their own sins. It'll be perfectly executed, and we're going to rejoice after that. And I think those tears will be wiped away, and we'll be, we'll be singing God's praises for all eternity from that moment forward. But for that moment, we might be grieving because we might be asking the question, did we do all that we could do to share the gospel and truth with people? 
God's plan will be perfectly executed. And I want to live for God. I want to love God. I want to increase my, my, my confidence and courage to go out into the world and, and be his witness in this world. I, I want to re- re- increase the impact and the effectiveness of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't even know how to necessarily communicate it or wrap it up, but I, I want to do more so that people have less of a chance of paying for their own, their own sins when Christ has already paid for them. I know you can tell somebody over and over and over again, you believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be forgiven and you'll be able to walk with God in a newness of life. I could tell people that over and over again and they still will reject it. I get that. But I don't want to be in the future looking at those people going, man, I, there's my next door neighbor. There's that person, that clerk at the store I could have shared my faith with more. I love God because I think his, his, his ways are right and they're perfect and they're good. And he will carry out his plan perfectly. So I trust him. I, this is the kind of love, it's not like a feeling kind of love. It's the kind of love that grows because you're confident in who God is and what he's done. And you trust him and you live by faith. And so my love for God increases just knowing his plan and it's going to be perfectly executed. And I hope it does for you too. Your courage, your confidence, and your love for God ought to increase when you understand God's sovereignty. So what do we do to respond? First, has God been challenging you to be more courageous in a certain area of your life? As we've gone through this whole series up to this point, seven weeks of it, has God been challenging you to be more courageous in a certain area of your life? Would you share that so I can be praying for you? So have our response cards. You can write them there. Maybe you just want to do it for yourself. That's fine. But, but ask that question. What has God been ch- challenging you to be more courageous in? And then the second thing, spend time this week noting God's surprising sovereignty in your life. And you're going to take some time in life group to share this. So if you're in a life group, uh, we're going to be sharing stories about how God has been working in our lives and hopefully be able to share that with others there. Make a list that you can easily access so you can remind yourself when you're feeling alone or discouraged. Because there will be times, if you haven't experienced it already, there will be times in your life, in your faith, where you'll feel alone. You'll ask the question, where are you, God? God will say, I'm here. Or you'll know that he's here with our knowledge. But we need to be reminded by looking back at our past and seeing how he's helped us in the past. Those are times that I have to go to or go to quite often. I feel like, oh, yeah, I remember God doing that. That was really cool. And I remember God doing that. I, I don't always see him right now, but I remember doing those things. And it reminds me that he doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. So we're going to come to a close here. I'm going to leave, uh, leave these questions up for a couple minutes. You're going to have a chance to pray through, think through, uh, spend some time with the Lord personally one-on-one. We're also going to have our prayer team up here on, on both sides of the wings here, and you can come and you can pray uh, with them if you'd like to. You can do that now. You can do that while we're singing a song. You can do that after we're done singing a song. Anytime in there, you could come up and pray with them and share some of these things because we want you to know you're not alone. Not only do you have Christ in your life if you've placed your faith in him, but you also have a body of believers who are there to encourage you and help you along the way. So think about those things.